Before we begin today's visit with Christian astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, to mention that several listeners asked me not to interview Dr. Hugh Ross because he doesn't believe in the six 24-hour creation. However, he does back his beliefs up with science and the Bible. In a few weeks, I'll be interviewing Dr. Marcus Ross of Liberty University, who does believe in the six-hour, 24-day creation, and he backs his beliefs with science and the Bible. Both are good men, and both are sincere, and it's not my job to tell you what to believe. I know that a lot of folks listening have friends who are interested in the origin of life, the origin of the universe. I hope you'll direct them to teawithgeorge.com and to the podcast section. Also, you can subscribe for a free one-minute update on politics, religion, history, and the Constitution. I'm George Kaler, teawithgeorge.com. Today's session of Get Real is sponsored by the Kaler Group Wealth Management in Lynchburg, Virginia. Do you want to safeguard, leverage, and grow your wealth? Call 434-455-7197. And today we're visiting with astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, whom I met at the Ratio Christie event at Liberty University. And since I'm two years older than you, may I call you Hugh? Definitely, definitely. Well, hello, Hugh. May I give a little bit of your background for the audience? They may not know who you are. I do. (laughs) But Dr. Hugh Ross, 78-year-old Christian apologist, old earth creationist. Dr. Ross obtained his PhD in in astronomy from the University of Toronto, has BS degree in physics from the University of British Columbia. He established his own ministry in 1986 called Reasons to Believe. Dr. Ross rejects both abiogenesis and evolution as explanations for the origin and history of life, contrary to scientific consensus. By the way, for the scientific civilians in our crowd, abiogenesis means the origin of life is the natural process by which life arose from non-living matter. Ross's position overlaps that with intelligent design, but Ross argues that the evidence points to Jesus Christ as the designer instead of an undefined intelligent designer. So you're an old earth creationist. Well, when I'm 78, I guess that makes me an old earth creationist, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're old, okay, and you're a creationist. So you, both, you make both sides angry. <laughs> now, what that means is I believe that the earth and the universe are billions of years old, but I believe that humanity is relatively recent, you know, a few tens of thousands of years old, and that all of humanity is descended from Adam and Eve, that God specially created. Before we begin questions and answers here, I'd like to read a few lines from Walt Whitman when I heard the learned astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick to rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Obviously, you needed more 
than just looking up in silence. Maybe you read Colossians 1.15. Well, you know, I got to emphasize with Whitman because uh, I was an amateur astronomer before I became a professional astronomer. So I was definitely looking up at the night sky that got me interested, wanted, motivated me to ask the big questions. And that's how I wound up becoming a professional astrophysicist. When I was a kid, I used to sleep outside a lot in the summer with my dog. And I always woke up smelling like a dog. My mother didn't like that. But I would look up at the stars, uh, the Pennsylvania stars. And to me, it was just a miracle. I knew there was God. I didn't know God. I didn't know Christ. But it just seemed logical. There was God. When Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, putting it in the words, maybe in your language, Christ came before mass, energy, space, and time, created mass, energy, space, and time, and by him, the fabric of the universe is held together. So my big question for you is, because it's such an unlikely combination in today's world, how did you become an astrophysicist and an evangelical Christian? Well, I got into astronomy because I wanted to know why the stars I saw up in the sky were hot. And my parents told me to go to the library, and I came home with five books on physics and astronomy, answered the question. But that really got me fascinated. I wanted to know a lot more. And so I began to really seriously study astronomy from that point onward. I knew when I was eight years of age that my future career would be astrophysics. But it was when I was 17 that I realized of all the different models to explain the origin and history of the universe, the Big Bang model was fitting the observations, the other models were not. And I realized if it's a Big Bang, there's a beginning. If there's a beginning, there's a cosmic beginner. And so it was at age 17, I said, I want to find that cosmic beginner. Had no idea where to look. I started off in the writings of Immanuel Kant and Ready Descartes. Then I looked at the world's holy books, beginning with the Vedas, Buddhist commentaries, I looked at Islam and the Quran, Zoroastrianism. Finally, I picked up a Bible. And again, to go through the Bible, I realized, wow, this book actually predicts four of the fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology. It actually describes the events of creation in the correct chronological order and correctly describes them. So I said, this looks like something that's not just invented by human beings. It's written as if it comes from the one that actually created the universe and did all the designs that prepared for us human beings. And so that's what motivated me to uh, sign my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, giving my life to Jesus Christ. I went on to Caltech to do research on quasars and galaxies after my doctorate. That's where I began to actually know Christians in a personal way. They showed me how to find a good church. And a few months later, that church put me on their pastoral staff. A few years later, they said, we want to help you launch an organization. That was the birth of Reasons to Believe. I'm just wondering right now how you got any major grants or published any major books or spoke in any major halls when they found out that you were a Christian. Never got any grants. I mean, that was a struggle, trying to launch an organization without any money. I did have a few booklets that I had uh, published. And so it was sales of those booklets that kept the organization alive in the first couple of years. And then we managed to find some people who said, hey, we want to support this. But it's been a struggle uh, throughout the past 38 years. And uh, now we've developed a community of uh, 225 scholars around the world. Our goal is to build it up to 1,000. 
and uh, you know they're working with us uh, to take the latest discoveries on the frontiers of science and show how those latest discoveries provide us with ever-increasing evidence uh, for the God of the Bible and the message of the Bible. And so we use discoveries in the book of nature to bring people to the book of Scripture and into a relationship with the Creator. I had a uh, molecular biologist tell me that if you took every strand of DNA out of your body and stretched it out, every DNA molecule, it would go out to the edges of our solar system. Right, right. All precisely arranged information. Yes. Why do you think that other scientists don't understand what you understand? I mean, the odds of that happening is just beyond astronomical. It's like there was a Dr. Harold Moravitz back when we started the space program. They asked him, what is the chance of life out there in outer space? Because if we brought a microbe back, we'd have no no immunity to it. It would wipe out humanity. And he studied it all, and he, he said it would be about 1 in 10 to the 340th power, which means it's the universe would, have to, <laughs> universe would have to be trillions of times older than you think it is and trillions of times larger yes. than you think it is. Why, why do scientists cling so hard to something that's so improbable? Well, the irony is Harold Morowitz was an agnostic, and yet he said the odds are impossible that you're going to get life happening naturalistically. And uh, when pressed on it, he just said, I don't know. <laughs> it's like... And I think, you know, a lot of research scientists I engage, I think they're kind of addicted to their scientific research. It's almost like a video game. They're getting such a thrill out of making these scientific discoveries, they don't think about anything else. Their whole focus is on science. And I remember attending an Origin of Life research conference and said, all of you identify yourself as atheists. But the truth of the matter is, from what I can understand, you've never thought about death. You never thought of what there might be beyond the universe. You never ask the big, important questions of life. And they said, yeah, you're right, we don't. And I says, well, you're really a default atheist. You really haven't thought about the big questions. And a lot of my peers in science, I would identify as default atheists. They're so focused on their science, they haven't really thought about the implications of what they're discovering. A natural predilection against God, it sounds. Well, I look at that as a rationale for the principle of the Sabbath. Take time out of your busy work to focus on the most important issues of life. And some of us are so caught up in our work, uh, we don't really do that. We don't take time out to focus on what's most important in life. As I've been a financial planner now for 51 years after I retired from rock and roll uh, back in 72. I went into finance, got my degrees, went into finance. And I run into a lot of very wealthy men who tell me about all the problems in the family because they, they took their focus off their family yeah, rather than the focus off growing more and more wealth. And that's yeah. hard for me to say because that's how I get paid, helping people become wealthier. Right. <laughs> but I urge <clears throat> them, wealth for wealth's sake isn't really wealth if you've missed out on something else. Richard Dawkins, as far as I'm concerned, he just kicked the can down the road. He, when finally cornered on the origin of life, he said, well, it probably came from an alien source. Okay, where did that life come from? <laughs> and so well, on. to be fair to Richard Dawkins, he was kind of cornered into that uh, statement because they basically said, okay, we know you're an atheist, but if you had to come up with an explanation other than abiogenesis, where chemistry and physics puts life together, 
uh, all through naturalistic processes, what would you come up with? And he says, well, if you force me into that corner, I would say aliens brought life to planet Earth. But he's on public record. He thinks that's a bad answer. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bad answer, but it, all but his other all, answers. He didn't want to give God the credit, so what else is he going to do? So <laughs> It's all bad. Well, I believe in abiogenesis, uh, whatever it is, because I saw the movie Frankenstein, where they ran chemicals through a dead guy, and <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> he came to life. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> you know, you're 78 now, and you've done it all, but there's young people listening to us right now. They, they don't have a clue how to get started, and maybe they want to be Christians. How, how are they going to be both Christians an astrophysicist or biologist, whatever. How are they going to do that? Well, I think my story is recognizing that the two books corroborate one another. We can utterly trust what we see revealed in the book of nature. The record of nature is something we can trust, but it affirms what we see in the book of scripture. The Bible is indeed without error. It's accurate, it's inspired, it's inerrant. And so that's how I became a Christian looking at the science and realizing what I saw in the Bible perfectly matched what well-established science had affirmed. And no other holy book did that. The Bible was unique in that capacity. The Bible was also unique in its ability to predict future scientific discoveries. I remember in my late teens coming up with a list of how many places in the Bible it had predicted future scientific discoveries. When it got to be more than 100, I realized, no, wait a minute. This only makes rational sense if this message comes from the one that actually did the deed. So that was a turning point in my life in terms of saying, okay, Christianity really is the truth, and this is what I need to dedicate my life to. There's also a difference between believing in God, God did it, and believing in Christ. Yes. How how did you come to Christ? I mean, for me, it was hand in glove once I found out who he was and what he did for me. And that wasn't until I was 33. How did you come to Christ through just believing God did it? How how did you believe that? Well, I got to that point by spending 18 months going through the Bible, about an hour a day studying it. And uh, what I did is I recognized, okay, this book is proving itself to be the true inspired word of the creator of the universe. But it's also revealing to me a standard of morality that's really elegant and beautiful. And it was way beyond the morality I saw in any other holy book. And I remember being very attracted to that and saying, you know, this is the way to live. Uh, You know, the people who lived it in the Bible really uh, were blessed. So I said, I want to live that way. So I remember during my late teens doing everything I could to live up to the moral standard in the Bible But the harder I tried, the more I realized I couldn't do it. But when I got to the New Testament, I realized God is prepared to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And something that caught my attention later was when I entered the University of Toronto, the astronomy professors sat the 13 of us in the freshman graduate class down and said, look, you are the cream of the crop from all across Canada. And we know you're prepared to work really hard. We know you're brilliant. But no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how hard you work, you're not going to get the PhD unless you get our help. We're here to help you. And only uh, seven of us got the PhD. And uh, yeah, of the other six, some of them did not avail themselves of the help from the professors. 
And I see that message in Christianity. You're not going to make it on your own, but God is there to help you do what you can't do for yourself. And unlike my professors at the University of Toronto, what I saw in the Bible was a promise, a guarantee. If you'll come to me uh, for the morality that you cannot achieve on your own, I guarantee I'll build it into your life. My professors didn't give me a guarantee. They just said I wouldn't make it without their help. <laughs> but God gives us a guarantee. Come to me for what you can't do for yourself. I guarantee you're going to make it. I said, that's an offer too good to turn down. And also realizing, you know, God knows me better than I know myself. So it only makes rational sense to put him in charge of my life rather than for me trying to do what I think is best for myself. And that's the core of the Christian faith receiving his offer of trading his moral perfection for a moral imperfection and putting him in charge of our life so that he can run it as he see fits. And I've never regretted that decision. You know, you, as I listen to you talk, you're like firing a thousand synapses in my head all the time <laughs> with every word. You know, my dad, when I was probably 12 years old, I was thinking of going off with some boys that wanted to do some mischief and daddy caught wind of it. And he said, Georgie, if rogues knew how good the good guys have it, there'd be no rogues. The thing is, you don't know how good the good guys have it unless you're a good guy. Right. Yesterday when you were having a conversation with Dr. Marcus Ross, uh, any relations there? Just, no. Uh, <laughs> well, very, very distant. We both have our relatives that go way, way back in Scotland. So, I mean, we'll probably have to go back about five or 600 years before we find any relationship. I was watching you when you got on stage with him, and they didn't check you for weapons, either one of you. No. But, <laughs> but I've seen... Which is probably a mistake, because I come from a family of soldiers. <laughs> okay. I've seen young Earthers or young Universers. I mean, that is a hill they're willing to die on. Yes. I've never seen an old universe guy, that that's the hill they're willing to die on. And I'm not sure why. Is it the word yom, a 24-hour day in, in Hebrew? What What's with young universers that they insist that it's six 24-hour days as we know 24-hour days, or you can't believe anything? Well, why, that was something it? new that I saw yesterday because I made the comment to the audience that the Hebrew word for day, yom, has four distinct literal definitions, one of which is a long period of time. Uh, Marcus Ross countered, well, two are literal and two are figurative. And I wish I had a chance to respond because no Hebrew lexicon says that. It really is four literal definitions. So the debate is really between one literal interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis and a different literal interpretation. I think if both sides recognize that, there wouldn't be the rancor. Part of the rancor is people thinking, oh, Hugh Ross is taking it figuratively, Marcus Ross is taking it literally. No, we're both taking it literally, but there are four different literal interpretations of the text. Something else is driving the emotion is people thinking, well, if it's old, that means there's death before Adam. And they look at that as something counter to the character of God. And the Bible's explicit that uh, when Adam sinned, that brought death to humanity for the first time. But I was appreciative that Marcus Ross conceded the point. The Bible nowhere says 
that there was death of plants or animals before Adam sinned, or any other kind of death. But based on what they think the character of God is, they would say there can't be any, we have to blame it on human sin. So, But they're failing to realize that God had a purpose. I mean, notice when the angels rebelled, the fallen angels rebelled, there is no pathway of salvation for them. When we humans rebelled, God said, we're going to take away access to the tree of life. Because if we had lived forever physically, we'd be dead forever spiritually. And God gave us a gift of physical life to deliver us from the far worse consequence of spiritual death. So I have a different view of death than what most young earth creationists have. And it's like, wait a minute, the creator died so that we could be delivered from our sin. So uh, why are we putting this uh, connotation on physical death? I like to witness for Christ, and I've been doing it now since I gave my life to Christ back 60 60 years ago, it seems almost. But I never started off a conversation. The earth was made in six days, and you need Christ. (laughs) Or the universe is old, and you need Christ. I've never done that either. (laughs) (laughs) Notice it's not in the creeds of any, any of the creeds of the church. I keep telling Christians we should not fight over things that are not in the creeds. Yes, we must have unity on the essentials, but the things that are not essential, we need to debate and discuss, because that's how we learn. If there's no discussion and no debate, we're not learning anything. The Bereans were praised for arguing validity of, of Scripture. They studied it. Right. And they compared... I guess like you, they compared Scripture to Scripture. Now, why, according to the Bible itself, if you can give me some offhand references so that people can look them up and uh, get to them, give us some offhand, right out of your mind, references in the Bible that would indicate the world isn't particularly new. Yeah, the uh, debate over whether it's thousands of years old or billions of years old, and it's like... When I looked at the Bible for the first time at age 17, I noticed that this word day in Genesis 1 must have three distinct definitions because three are used in the text. Creation day one, it's talking about the daylight hours. Creation day four, seasons, days, and years. That's 24 hours. Genesis 2-4 uses the word day for the entirety of creation history. But what really caught my attention is the first six creation days have closure. There's an evening and a morning for the first six days, indicating each day has a start time, each day has an end time. There's no evening-morning phrase for the seventh day, indicating it's not yet finished. And both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 tell us we're still in God's seventh day. And then I look at day six. That's when God creates a human male and a human female. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God creates Adam first. He has to go through three careers before God creates Eve. And when he sees Eve, what does he say? At long last, the Hebrew word hapa'am, at long last. And God noticed while he's going through those careers, this man is lonely. And so that doesn't happen in a few minutes in a 24-hour day. And so if the sixth day is a long time period and the seventh day is a long time period, the grammatical structure of Genesis 1 tells us all the days of creation for long periods of time. Therefore, there's no contradiction with, that, with what astrophysicists and geophysicists are saying about the age of the Earth and the age of the universe, or when God created the first life. 
Yeah, we're, we're coming to the end here, believe it or not. And uh, this is only a half-hour program. I interviewed Dr. Leon Letterman mm-hmm. years ago, Nobel Prize winner, ran the Fermi Labs, and Higgs boson studies, quarks, leptons. And I found the man met, uh, really fascinating. But at the end of the interview, I asked him the question I'm going to ask you right now. You've done it all. You're published. People respect you. And you're working on 80. <laughs> Do you have any questions left that you haven't resolved yet in your, in your studies? Well, I've now written 22 books. And what drives my book writing is answering questions I get from non-Christians where I don't see good answers. And uh, yes, I just finished a book 23 because a lot of them are saying, look, I have a really hard time with Noah's flood. I says, you know what? There's a lot of new research on that topic. And so I just finished that book two weeks ago. And now our staff has says, Hugh, uh, we're getting a lot of requests on UFOs and extraterrestrials. And I said, there's a lot of new published material on that. That's my next book project. So, uh, and I've got several other books in line. So I'm doing my best to stay healthy and in good physical shape. <laughs> Keep better. my brain sharp because uh, I'm not done with my book writing yet. <laughs> You know, this has been one of the most fascinating, fascinating conversations for me, and I know it has been for our listening audience as well. Where can they go to find you on the Internet and to order your books and to see what you're about? Well, our website's reasons.org. There's tens of thousands of articles there you can read for free. We have a YouTube channel, uh, reasons.org YouTube. You'll see thousands of video clips there. If you want something entertaining, I did a an hour-plus debate with uh, the Oxford chemist, Peter Atkins. It's up on YouTube. Lots of people have watched it. It's a fun one. And that's how most people find me, is through the debates I've done that are on uh, YouTube. I do have a Facebook and Twitter page uh, that I, where I answer questions. So literally every day I'm answering people's questions on Facebook and Twitter. Reasons.org. And they can get free chapters of my books at reasons.org slash Ross. How much do those free chapters are just to get them to buy more books, right? <laughs> well, most people just want the free chapter. They don't bother buying the book. But my whole goal is at least get them exposed to some of the content. This has been an honor and a privilege. May God bless you, Dr. Thank Hugh you. Ross.